Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Psychology and New Books in Neuroscience. These are podcast channels with the New Books Network. I'm Dr. John Griffiths from the University of Toronto and Toronto's Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. I'm co-host to this channel with Chris Harris and Joseph Friedman. Today I'm speaking with Yuri Busaki. Dr. Busaki is the Biggs Professor of Neural Sciences at New York University. He is, put simply, one of the most celebrated and respected neuroscientists working in the field today. He's the recipient of multiple awards including the prestigious Brain Prize for his work on hippocampal cortical circuits. He's the author of over 300 peer-reviewed scientific publications, and his first book, Rhythms of the Brain, which is a tour de force of mechanisms and scientific understanding of facilitatory brain activity, is something approaching kind of biblical status amongst practicing neuroscientists. It's really obligatory reading for anyone who works on brain rhythms. But today we're going to be talking about Yuri's new book, The Brain from Inside Out. So in this book, He presents his take on the idea that the brain is fundamentally not a receptive information processing device, but rather a system for generating action. Uh, And in addition to this this core thesis, the book is littered with fascinating facts about brain organization, as well as insightful reflections on things like the scientific method and contemporary neuroscientific practice and thinking. So Yuri, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, John. Now, before we get into the book, I'd like you to first tell us a bit about yourself and your personal and professional biography. And as part of that, something I'm particularly interested in is kind of the arc of thinking and understanding and questioning that led you from your last book on brain rhythms to the new book, The Brain from Inside Out. Uh, I'm a curious person. And uh, my curiosity, curiosity probably started with the radio waves. I always wondered how we can communicate. As a child, I started to build radios. In high school, I became a ham radio. I learned the Morse code. I built antennas, receivers, transmitters. And I had a goal in front of me laid out, which is uh, to learn how to communicate from different parts of the world if you use the moon as a bouncer. And, uh, you know, that naivety uh, was terminated by my parents' decision. and I went to medical school. But from the second year in medical school, I worked in a brain research laboratory and I realized that many of the ideas I already had about oscillations, feed-forward, feedback networks, and communication and coding, is, uh, is in the, uh, they are all in the brain. And, uh, and I had a very charismatic professor who set me on the right track. I started with him working on the hippocampus structure, which is in the depth of the brain, uh, very far away from the peripheral sensors. So, and it's full with rhythms. So then my career was set there. Thanks, that's that's great. It's very illuminating. Um, okay, so, 
So let's now jump into the book. So my general take-home assessment of the book's content is that there's an interesting mix of both big ideas that aren't particularly technical per se, as well as a lot of perhaps more niche, um, and for me, equally fascinating, um, just straight-up facts from the last 50 years of neuroscience research. Um, And you introduce a number of these generic and also specific points, and I'd like to cover um, each of these, really. But first up, maybe you could give us the big picture. So what 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 would be um, your you know elevator summary of the, the the big picture, the principal thesis, and the principal perspectives you want to present in the book? Uh, you mentioned my first book, the Rhythms of the Brain. The first sentence of the book of that book is that brains are foretelling devices. That is, they predict the future, and. Uh, that philosophy was laid out in a, in a mini version in that book, but I realized over the years that that uh, thought is probably worth discussing further. And the reason for that is that when you look at current neuroscience, it it is in a uh, interesting framework that with simplification you can say it's an outside-in organization. Now, what I mean by that is that Ever since the time of Aristotle, we've been thinking about the brain as a, a blank slate, as a, as a book that has to be written and, and filled in with words and then sentences and so on, and then it becomes a, a rich source of, of knowledge. So this philosophy portrays the brain as a uh, information-absorbing device whose main goal is to learn about the truth of the world uh, outside. And then... Uh, we can go on and, and, and discuss why this is, a, uh, in my view, a dead end. Uh, so I suggested an alternative way, which I call the inside-out approach, which is starting from the, the brain and uh, understanding that the brain's goal is to help the body to survive and generate actions and predict the consequences of its, of its action. And then it leads to a next level of problems is that if it's not a blank slate device, then uh, what, is, what is the role of learning? In, uh, in the outside in, you know, every single new learning episode does some big change in the brain. And uh, we'll discuss later why this is a problem. But the alternative solution is that the brain is already equipped with its own dynamic, a stable dynamic. It generates incredible number of patterns. Uh, we call them neural sequences or neural trajectories, and these trajectories are available to be matched with something interesting in the outside world. So in this new framework, uh, learning and experience is a matching process uh, that is happening with the help of action. Action is the, the, the mechanism by which existing brain patterns are grounded the things that are important to the organism. Good, good. And um, so, so we'll come to action in a second, and um, and the implications of that in in your approach. I, I wondered if you could first do a little bit more in because in the first um, the first chapter, which is helpfully titled "The Problem," uh, you, you you kind of expand on this critique a little bit. You basically have some concerns about the. Um, the way in which contemporary neuroscience and cognitive science are 
using uh, concepts that are kind of coming from the wrong place and and not necessarily the right vocabulary for thinking about brain science. So can you expand on that critique a little bit more? So I started with the hard statement is that the current state of neuroscience is following the blank slate model. That is, the brain is a tabula rasa. Now, I have to clarify that I have never met a neuroscientist who would agree with that. Nevertheless, the way how we do and design our experiments, the way how we interpret our results today is perfectly in line with this model. So I examined a little bit in the first chapters that, you know, where does this thinking come from? And they, my interpretation is that uh, before we knew anything about the brain, we were thinking about the spirit and the mind and uh, philosophers and, and uh, uh, smart people were wondering, you know, where does our knowledge come from? And the, the typical answer is that you know, God created us and uh, created the soul and the mind as a tool to learn about the truth and the veridical nature of the world. We, we, are, we, we are given sensors and the sensors are there to experience and once we experience things outside, we have to make a decision whether we are doing the right thing or the wrong thing and of course we have to choose the right thing, which, which is God and so on. So from this background, from the, the Christian philosophies, we move forward to the next uh, centuries. Uh, and then uh, from experience, we are starting a little bit of experimentation. And we move to, let's say, British philosophers or British empiricists who follow this same kind of idea that the brain is a uh, information-absorbing device and uh, we perceive and there are many, many words that are associated with these things, such as perception of uh, time, perception of space, uh, memory, emotions, all sorts of things. And if you think about all these words, uh, these words that we are using in contemporary neuroscience are basically 2,000 year old. And then you, when you, you think about how is it possible that words that were concocted by our predecessors so many years ago before we knew anything about the brain are still valid entities and why is it that these words are guiding our research and our goals as neuroscientists is to find homes or boxes in the brain for these dreamed up words and see how the boundaries in our thoughts corresponds to the boundaries in brain mechanisms so I think you agree with me that this is this cannot be the right path. And then why are we doing these things and what are we typically doing in, in neuroscience? A typical scenario is that you give some uh, stimuli, we call them stimuli and, and signals as if those things in the physical world actually would signal something to the brain and would be stimulating uh, the brain as uh, it, it is, is the idea about, uh, you know, it's a, it's a Newtonian idea that, that anything that has to change needs a mover. And this is the, the, the origin of the word stimulus. Uh, now, the problem with this approach is that 
when we do an experiment, we present stimuli or put the animal in the environment, and then we record something from the brain, we correlate the activity, what's outside and what's inside the brain. Now, when you find a nice correspondence between, let's say, brain waves or firing of the neurons and uh, what happens outside in the brain, outside the brain in the, in the world, then we can make predictions from these correlations and we can celebrate saying that, oh, we are working on the neuronal code. But this is a totally and absolutely misleading exercise. The reason for that is that the arbitrator of this correlation is the experimenter. It is only the experimenter who has access both to the outside world as well as what's happening inside the brain. Now, neurons in the brain have no clue, no clue whatsoever what happens outside. All they know is that they get inputs from other neurons, both from the sensory part of the brain, the motor part of the brain, from each other, and so on. So from this, this device or this, this idea that, that neurons are getting information from the outside world is misleading because there is no way they can ground this, this input. So grounding means that you have to verify something with a second opinion. So when you are looking for a second opinion, then you can say what else is available for the brain? And the answer is action. The only thing that, that the brain can have besides absorbing something is generating something and looking at the consequences of that action. Now, this takes us to the next big part of the book, uh, which gives an explanation why this is a good solution. And it explains that the interesting thing about the outputs of the brain which gives rise to actions, and actions mean uh, to be a lot of things, such as uh, muscle movements, eye movements, but also you change your heart rate, or you sweat, or you, you release hormones, and so on. And then you, you can, can verify the consequences of, of those things. Now, when you, when you, you, you generate the, those, these, these actions, then interesting things will happen because now what, what, what the action-producing mechanisms mean is not only that you send something out of the brain, but you send something back to the brain as well. This is called corollary discharge or reafferentation or reafference, and there are various names, but they all refer to the same thing, that every single time something goes out of the brain, the brain informs the rest of the partners that I did something. I am the agent of what's happening. And, and this, is, this has been discovered many, many years ago, but we keep forgetting that this is a fundamental thing that gives rise to many, many important consequences. So then I keep going into uh, uh, to the, the deeper in this, this, uh, this, this idea that indeed now all neurons in the brain can have two types of information. One is that is generated by the by the brain itself, and the other one is the whatever it comes from outside. Now, if this is the case, then uh, then why is this better? Well, the reason why it is better for me is that if we take the other approach, namely that we start from 
perception, and then we absorb the world, we are learning about the truth of the world, and eventually we have to respond to those inputs. And the, the biggest problem with this is that between the perception and the action, there is a huge territory that is unknown. And, and this unknown territory is usually referred to as the free will, consciousness, decision-making, uh, internal variables, uh, black box, depending on your philosophies, you can name it various ways, but they all refer to the same thing. That is, they have to be something that makes a decision for you. This is circumvented or bypassed by making the other way around, because all you have to do is generate an action and look at the consequences of those actions. Now, so one of the things you were, you kind of getting onto this, I guess, but the, um, the, you, you draw on this idea and you kind of intimated to it just now, this is and a somewhat old idea from cognitive science, which is the perception action cycle. But you also highlight this, you want, you want to emphasize the difference between thinking about things in terms of perception action cycles and action perception cycles. Um, and, uh, and this is, this is something that's kind of quite important that you know, when you're, when you're laying out the, the role of the, um, the, the cycling of information from action, from action generation to perception and then back again. So can you kind of emphasize, can you lay out that a little bit, like what the what the importance is in your eyes between thinking about action perception cycles versus perception action cycles? Okay, so let's take uh, it to the next step, which is uh, how is cognition possible? You know, in the older framework, so what you have to do is the brains are smart devices and uh, they are the, the, the complications and the abilities to perceive and uh, processed, the world is already given to you. Uh, that's not quite right, and it's hard to explain how it works. But if we go the other way around, we start from action, then this is how I explain cognition. Let me give you an example. Nature generates a mechanism that allows you to walk around in the world find your way around the world, and we call this navigation. Now, navigation is re requires that we are relying on the outside world. We need things that will come into the brain in order to find our ways around. This is called map-based navigation. There is another and simpler version of this, and this is actually a prerequisite for this map-based navigation. This is called self-centered or, or, or egocentric kind of navigation that allows you to find your way around even in complete darkness. You work around in a room, you can come back to exactly where you were. All you have to do is to remember your speed, your direction, and how many times you make a turn and so on. Now, once you explore a world, or let's say just a room, then at the end, you can make and, 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 and uh, write a map or draw a map of the layout of the room that you just walked around in complete darkness. So then that map will be there for you forever. And the advantage of that map is that you go from anywhere to anywhere else, even though you didn't do that journey completely. So the point here 
is that initially the brain has to rely on outside cues. But with time, when the brain gets complicated, there are so many loops between the outputs and the inputs, and do you wonder what is the role of all these groups that we have? Why is the brain gets more complicated from insects to humans? And the common answer to both of them is that both devices, the simple and the more complex, have one goal, which is to predict the consequences of the action of the organism. Now, a simple organism can predict the future in a simple environment and at a short time scale. And the reason why brains can do this prediction is because we live in a world where there are recurrences and regularities. Without these, of course, the brains would be helpless. Now, more complex brains are capable of predicting the future in a much noisy environment and at a much longer time scale. So you can think about whether you do this or that in a, in a, in a very uh, fuzzy situation or so. Now, the simplest thing about, about thinking about the, the, the prediction is extrapolation, or you can make it even simpler, interpolation. What happens, for example, when you close your eyes? When you close your eyes, what do you see? Does the brain or does the world disappear? The answer is no, it doesn't. I can see the couch next to me. I can see the same exact layout of my room and even I can walk forward. So if you are with me at this point, then you can ask yourselves, what is seeing? What is the, the, what, what is the process of what we call seeing? And the answer is that we are peeking into the computation of the brain itself. We are not looking at what is the, what are the photons doing with my retina, but what my neurons in the brain do. We are peeking into the action of the brain. Now, if you believe that, then you can say the next level is to disengage the brain from the process, uh, from, the, from the sensors, such as closing your eyes and so on and so on. And in that case, we can still see the computation of the brains. We can do a virtual navigation and we can ask what if questions. What if I do this? What if I do that? Without actually acting out. This internalization or disengagement is the mechanism in my framework that gives rise to cognition. Now, going back to my navigation example, when we know how to navigate in the, the physical world, and now we can disengage the sensors from the physical world, we can still navigate. We can mentally travel back to the past. We can imagine the future. And this mental navigation is pretty much the same, is based on pretty much the same brain mechanisms as navigation, except that there are no external clues. So it turns out that the same exact structures that one group of people claim that this is our GPS device, such as the hippocampus and the enteral cortex, another group of people say, no, this is the 
the mechanisms or these are the structures that generate our episodic memories. The interesting thing over the past several years, especially in human psychology and, uh, and uh, uh, brain imaging experiments, is that when people were tested what structures are involved and being activated, when you imagine, imagine the future or you plan for the future, these are exactly the same structures. So there is only one brain mechanism, one brain algorithm, and the same structures are involved in different things that we call by different names, such as navigation, postdiction, which is called memory, prediction, which is called planning the future or imagination. So all those words that in the past we had separate words and we were looking for mechanisms and in, uh, by different ways and different, uh, different goals, turns out to be served by the same structure. So the inside-out approach, I claim, can simplify our vocabularies and ground those words that we've been using for a long time because they are viewed from, from the point of view of brain mechanisms. Excellent. I, I'm going to jump in on a question there about um, kind of pro, general processing principles and generalizations across brain regions because you were, you were talking then about... Um, should we? Should we try to? Should I try to explain it better? Because that I f- I feel I spent so much, so many words, but I didn't explain it well. Um, well, if you if you have um, things to add, then then go ahead. But the the question I was going to ask was about um, uh, the whether whether you think about um, what your what your kind of thoughts are on certain ge- um, general uh, generalizations we use in in probably the kind of textbook neuroscience um, way of thinking about say the role, the role of say hippocampus versus cortex and um, these ideas of um, let's say general, a generalized role of, of association cortex as being a kind of generalized version of, um, of feature recognition that we, we understand well in primary visual cortex, let's say. So the higher up you go, say in the ventral stream, you're doing abstract, more abstracted versions of the information processing that you're doing in the in a kind of more concretely, spatially grounded way in the primary visual cortex. So that's one general, you know, heuristic that we use about the function of the the cortex um, and the pro- processing principles of the cortex. But then there's also the hippocampus. Which you know is cortex, but it's a different kind of cortex, right? It's allocortex. But the, do you think of, um, you know, uh, the the if you like processing principles in hippocampus and in association cortex as basically the same, or does hippocampus have a particular kind of special type of organize, organization for you? So you ask many questions here. But the way how you frame the question is the way how the questions are usually framed. Is that uh, where is uh, visual perception? Where is auditory perception? Where is this? Where is that? Where is memory? And that kind of questions led to the current uh, textbook knowledge of neuroscience. And this is the way how we teach our uh, students is that uh, the hippocampus is about memory. Your emotions are processed and stored or at least processed in the amygdala. Uh, Decision-making is made by the executor function uh, uh, structure of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, 
and so on and so on. So we we we, we put these pre-existing terms that we think are real into boxes, and we are talking about spatial perception. Now there is no such a thing perception of time. You cannot perceive time. You cannot perceive space. These are abstract things. They are immaterial. They, they cannot exert anything on neurons or in in, 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 uh, in, in, in any receptor or peripheral uh, agent because they are not producing any force. Nevertheless, they, they are in our, in our, in our uh, constructed world and then we are trying to explain that it constructed world. Now you ask about what is the difference between the hippocampus and the associational cortices. Well, if we don't understand something in the brain, we usually put them into the prefrontal cortex because any complexity that is uh, difficult to explain is that, oh, it has to be organized or solved by the most complicated structure, which is the prefrontal cortex. Well, it depends how you look at it. If you look at the mesoscopic or microscopic anatomy of the prefrontal cortex and let's say the visual cortex, you will find differences for sure. But there are fundamentally similar organizations. Are there similarities between the hippocampus and the rest of the cortex? Uh, yes, there are similarities. There are same type of neurons, but at the same time, the organization is fundamentally different. What is the fundamental difference? The neocortex is a modular structure. So everybody agrees with that. We are talking about columns, modules, hypocolumns, and so on. That is a replicative structure. The way how it can grow is to add new and new and new modules when the brain grows. Now, the hippocampus is a single giant cortical module, just one. You can think about the differences between uh, uh, dorsal hippocampus and ventral hippocampus, and we find differences, but the differences are mainly due to what the inputs are to these segments of the hippocampus. Now, the reason why I'm saying is that it's a giant cortical structure is because there are, that you cannot really fractionate the hippocampus into smaller modules. It just grows during the course of evolution. And the reason why evolution did that is because this is the device in the brain that would like to connect anything with anything else. It generates a huge or it gives rise to a huge recurrent system, and you are familiar with this term CA3 region, which has a lot of recurrences, and the probability that a neuron in the hippocampus, a, a pyramidal neuron in the hippocampus, is connecting to its neighbors or to distant parts of the same structure is pretty much the same. Therefore, it looks like a random graph. In other words, the hippocampus is closest, if you are looking for a random graph in the brain, then the, your best bet is the hippocampus. So this anatomical organization already tells you that it can make this journey that you can go from anywhere to anywhere else, then this is exactly what we discussed a minute ago, is required for navigating in, in the world. But it's the same device that is necessary that is allowing to navigate mentally, go from any, any complex idea to any other complex idea even though that path has never been been taken. Now, the hippocampus is connected to, via the entire cortex, to the rest of the brain. And it 
its main job is not any of those things that we have discussed so far. The hippocampus is blind completely to modalities. It has no clue what it is 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 is, uh, is processing. What it does is that it gets an input and responds to that input. And if the input is is or the question is is posed to the brain that it's about space, then you will get an answer about space. If you pose the question and set up the experimental paradigm that's about time, you get time. If you ask about whether uh, a, a continuously changing tone is is uh, significant for the animal, then you will get that answer. So this is why it is important to understand that even though a structure and the mechanism can be uniform, the answers that the experimenter can get depends on how the experimental expert, experimenter's expectations are and how the experiment is set up. So this is the long answer to your interesting question. What is the difference between the hippocampus and the rest of the cortex? That's excellent. Thanks. And while we're on hippocampus, and this is, you know, it isn't a book about hippocampus by any means, but as, as we're on the topic, one of the things that you also um, lay out, and indeed you're a, one of the, the world experts on, is, is um, what the, the way in which, it, um, and again, this is, this is a somewhat textbook neuroscience topic, so maybe you'll take issue with it, or maybe you'll, you'll be okay with it roughly as it is. The, the hippocampus um, you know, relays memories to the cortex for long-term memory uh, representation and consolidation. And there's a, there's a, you know, a, a kind of short-term to long-term coding delegation, um, some of which happens during slow wave sleep. And there's interesting ways in which the, you know, hippocampus and cortex interact during sleep as opposed to waking. But what's the, you know, the kind of current state of knowledge on, on that dynamic in terms of memory transfer and, and, um, and uh, the, the role of that dance that the hippocampus and cortex play in memory formation? Well, of course, I agree with that statement, what you just said, mainly because uh, I think one of our major contributions to neuroscience was to identify a biomarker or to identify a mechanism that allows this to happen. Um, this is called sharp wave ripple. Sharp wave ripple is a compression mechanism that allows that experiences that we had in the waking state can be compressed into 100 to 200 millisecond packages and then can be broadcasted back to the neocortex. This is the two-stage model of memory that uh, uh, I thought about in 1989. And there are many, many experiments that seem to support that the sharp wave ripple pattern is absolutely critical to our memories. If you take them out, you have about two to 3,000 sharp wave ripples every single night. If you would allow me to take all of them out, and we have methods to do that, then you will not remember any part of this conversation. Recently, we have shown that if we can prolong this hippocampal sharp wave ripples in rodents, at least, then we can improve memory consolidation. We can improve memories. So this is fantastic. But this was all about memories. This was all about postdiction. Now, it turns out in the past, let's say, 10 years, at least next five years, that we have observed that before the animal starts a journey, there is a sharp wave. And when the animal ends a journey, 
there is also a, a series of sharp waves. In other words, when the hippocampus or the brain switches from one state to the next, one can you can call uh, a, a processing state, the other one is offline state, both cases, there are these sharp wave patterns. But the extraordinary thing that we have observed and uh, several laboratories have observed, that before you plan the journey, the sequences are forward and the sequences are the, the sequences that the sharp wave ripple contains corresponds to the sequences of the play cells that will come up during the journey. At the end of the journey, there is another sharp wave, one of the sets of sharp waves, and now the information is played backwards. In summary, or in short, what we thought was memory consolidation in the past, it turns out that is the same substrate or the same substrate can function as a subconscious or preconscious primer for future actions. That's really fascinating. Um, and it's great to hear the, the latest on this work because it's, it's been you know, a, a, a really impressive series of work you've been doing um, along with other people in the field for, for decades now. I guess one of the things that this... this... But, uh, but uh, just to, to pause here for a second, isn't that interesting? You know, the, the experimental work is very nice and we have to applaud how a lot of diligent, very, very smart people work on this. But all of a sudden we have one pattern and two different words, two different ideas, such as planning and memory consolidation, are mediated by the same brain pattern. It should pause us to think about, you know, why do we have different words when they are the same mechanisms? That's fascinating. So one of the connection points, I think, um, from the the general idea about this sharp wave ripple mechanism is I, I think this fits into a broader perspective you have about this idea of neural syntax and the way in which some of the the rhythmic patterns and the general dynamics of brain um, mechanisms at various scales kind of serve this process of parsing information and and achieving information processing at multiple temporal scales. So could you go go into neural syntax and and what it means to you and what you're doing with this idea? Neural syntax, of course, is a metaphor. But if you start from the start and you would like to understand what coding means, then you have to get a good definition that is working also for the brain. So so coding, in a general sense, is a... uh, agreement between the sender and the receiver. Uh, and every single time you would like to send anything and and uh, and process anything in communication systems, whether it's the brain or something else, you need to package the information. Packaging means that you have to have a beginning and the end of a message. Now, uh, every single system, communication system works like this. So when you ask yourself, you know, what is the syntactical rule or the packaging rule in the brain, then there is not many alternatives. You can say the best thing that is there is inhibition. Inhibition is a natural way to end a message. It's a full stop. or You can have a coma and, and so on. And it turns out that every single brain written that happens in the frequency range that we are usually talking about brain rhythms is inhibition-based. Now, the 
interesting things about brain rhythms is that everybody knows there is theta oscillation, gamma oscillation. Also, some names are given to these, these bands, but what is less understood, and, and uh, this is where our research are, is probably important, is there is a system of rhythms in the brain, which means that there is a hierarchy and there is a several order or several order of magnitude span within which there are many oscillators and they happen to lie on a log scale. So the consequences of this are twofold. One is that if the oscillation is fast and it happens as a cycle time is too short, then communication has to be local because in a short period of time in the brain with, with finite axonal delays and synaptic delays, information cannot get far. So, for example, gamma is typically local. But if you are going down the scale and you get wider and wider waves, then in 200, 300, 500 milliseconds, you can reach the entire brain if, if it's needed. So that's a good thing. The second good thing is that now you have to put them together in a communicative way, in a hierarchical form. And the, the mechanism of that is called cross-frequency phase coupling. Now, what does this mean? What it means is that the phase of a slow oscillation is modulating the power of a faster one. And the phase of the faster oscillation modulates the power of even faster one, and so on. So then this activity, this, this energy landscape ripples from low to very high, which means that slow oscillations can have an impact on all or most of the faster ones. Uh, a good analogy would be probably the phases of the moon. You know, the, the phases of the moon change every single day, and uh, that corresponds to a month. So the monthly cycle would be the, uh, the long period. And the daily changes, that is, if you just look at the amount of light that is reflected back from the moon, that would be the power. So the reflected power from the moon changes as a function of the phase of the monthly uh, uh, moon rhythm. Now... If we have so many rhythms, then, and then it means that in these little time slots, neurons can fire and send something from one place to another, then it's a good communicative system. And here is the analogy, or here's the metaphor, that this system is not very different from what we call neural syntax, where there are uh, certain rules, and uh, there are two major aspects of it. This one is, one is packaging the information, the other one is how you can make unlimited amount of information from limited number of, of, uh, of, of components. And then the former is a little bit easier question because you can say that, uh -huh, is there any uh, proof or is there any support for this idea that that syntax is in fact is mediated by brain rhythms? And then there are many. For example, we just mentioned or discussed a little bit hippocampal sharp phase. It turns out that hippocampal sharp wave ripples, which is anywhere between 110 to 150 in the road end, is modulated by a faster rhythm called sleep spindle. Now, the sleep spindle 
in turn is modulated by another oscillation called slow oscillations of sleep. This is anywhere between 0.4 to 1.1, 1.2 hertz. Now, this slow oscillation is modulated by even slower, typically called 0.1, or it's also the bold signal. This is what fMRI people see as a fluctuation at this low time scale, which is uh, capable of changing the, the power of the slow oscillation. The slow oscillation is changing the power of the sleep spindles, and the phase of the sleep spindle is capable of changing the power of ripples. So this is what I mean by hierarchical organization. And the this idea of um, log scaling in general or log normal scaling is something that you, you also take the, the time to, um, to list a pretty stunning number of ways or number of aspects of both um, anatomical, anatomical organization in the nervous system, as well as physiological things like, like uh, spike firing rates and, um, and, and uh, um, spike intervals, and also some psychological characteristics like the, the Weber-Fechner law. Like you, 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 you're looking for quite a broad, um, you know, knitting together of the structural and the dynamic and the psychological ways in which um, logarithmic scaling kind of appears in in brain and and psychology organization so do you want to have a go at pulling pulling in those those broader parts as well yes indeed this it's a good segue to the third part of the book which is about the, the skewed organization of everything or almost everything in the brain uh, I thought about the, the skewed organization, log organization, already in the first book, in the written book, that I were, where we described this uh, uh, log distribution of uh, brain oscillations. But as you just mentioned, that one of the laws that neuroscience can be very proud of is the Weber law or the Weber Fechner law, which uh, describes our rule, the rules of our sensation. Uh, I don't know if you want me to go into details and explain what it is. Yeah, a little bit, please. Uh, so the, the essence of the, the Weber observation is that if you are sitting in a room in complete darkness, then even a, a light of a match will spark your attention because uh, you will see it right away, even though the amount of light that comes out from a, a match is, is very small. Now, the same thing happens in during daylight. You won't notice it. In other words... The noticeable difference depends on the magnitude of the baseline. If some, the, the baseline is very strong, then you need a proportional change. And, and this is what I like to emphasize because the, the brain is a device that looks at, at, at fractional differences. And uh, this is a hundred-year-old rule, but nobody had come up with a good explanation why this is so. And of course, this is not only with sensation. This is this is the rule for forgetting. And there are many other uh, uh, the physical parameters of the, the body and, uh, and, and the brain that follows this rule. So when we started to look into the potential mechanism of this through brain rhythms down to other things, then we found that almost everything in the brain has a very broad distribution and these distributions are skewed and typically follow a log normal, occasionally a, uh, a 
there are there are many other forms of of of, of skewed distribution, but log normality is is, the, is my favorite, and I will tell you why in a second. So if you look at the firing rate distributions, which we looked in carefully, then all you have to do is count the number of spikes a particular neuron emits in a minute, or in an hour, or in 24 hours. And then those are pretty pretty much the same numbers. And you come up with a fiery great description of this neuron. Then you go to another neuron, another neuron, another neuron. And then you have 10,000 of them. You can plot them on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a particular scale. You can do it in a linear scale and a log scale. And if you do it on a log scale, you will see that it's a bell shape. If you do it on a linear scale, you see that the majority of them are very, 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 very slow, and a minority of them are fast. So even if you are talking about the same exact kind or type of pyramidal cell, this rule is there. Then this rule was there when we looked at cortical cells, thalamic cells. Uh, other people looked at uh, human monkey cortical neurons, or we looked at their data sets, or even in the, in the ventral horn of the the, the, the modern neurons in the ventral one of the turtle show this rule. Now that's fine. Then we look at the synaptic weight distribution, that is the strength of, of communication between neurons, same thing. They show a log normal distribution. Look at the axonal conduction delays, same thing. Axonal diameters, same thing. Uh, if you would like to know uh, or measure and calculate what fraction of neurons in your brain at this moment are firing, then the answer is that it's very skewed. In every single second or every 100 millisecond, let's say only 0.1% of your neurons are firing, but sometimes the percentage can go up to 5%. So there is several order of, of difference how many neurons are engaged every time in brain computation. So everything that we looked at in dynamics follow this rule at the single neuron level, population level, and when we look at the literature, then it turns out that this is the same thing for the anatomical organization. Most neurons have local connections, but many neurons can have distant connections. And the Allen Institute did a very good job, and uh, it's something that has never happened in the history of neuroscience, is that in the very same lab, they did a grand-scale anatomy. And... Therefore, they could dismiss all the variations that typically happens when small laboratories in different, different parts of the world are trying to do the same kind of thing. And the astonishing observation is that every single part of the cortex is connected to a small number of other structures very strongly. But the same structures are connected to very large number of of structures in the same hemisphere or in the same endochondral hemisphere weekly. And this rule happened to be true not only in cortical but also subcortical organization. And when you look at the distribution of this rule, that's a log normal rule, which means that an area, the half of the area, or no, put it this way, half of the connections are to a small number of, of favorite friends, friendly structures, but the other half is to many, many stranger structures. Now, if you look at the single neuron organization, the same rule applies. You, you count the 
inputs, which are typically represented by spines in pyramidal cells, that there are some giant spines occasionally, but the majority of them are small. And if you distribute or look at the distribution of this, uh, that is the the incidence of the large and the small, you've got a three-order of magnitude wide range, and the shape will be a log normal shape. In other words, there is an anatomical substrate at the macroscopic and microscopic level that gives rise to a, a both macroscopic and microscopic organization of, uh, of brain dynamics that all corresponds to its log normality. So, of course, there is a big leap from here, but the leap that we are trying to entertain that, indeed, the reason why we have a law, a Weber law for perception, which is a log law, is because we have the anatomical substrate and we have the, the, the dynamic substrate, which follows the same rules. Good, good. And you have a, another, well, you have a few, but one of the other um, extensions um, that you, you do with the idea, the, the, the broad idea of uh, some highly connected neurons or some, um, kind of in a sense, like privileged populations and a, a larger number of, uh, yeah. So rich clubs, but um, you you talk about these two systems in the I think the penultimate chapter, the good enough brain, and uh, which is um, yeah, the idea you have a small number of neurons that really dominate um, neural activity and, and decision making in a rapid way, and a, and a kind of broader set that um, may be utilized for achieving precision. And in in that uh, chapter as well, in the op- opening up, you have quite an amusing little uh, anecdote about. What, what, how you felt when you um, read uh, Daniel Kahneman's book that has some similar ideas. Could you share that, that little anecdote with us and expand on this two brain systems idea? So the, the general flow from the inside out approach that is the fundamental mechanisms that the brain is supposed to accomplish is to generate an output and look at the consequences of this output is that there has to be a self-organized brain system. Now, if, you, if we go a step back a little bit to the other option, which is the outside in or, or, or blank slate, then the implication is that every single time we learn something novel, there has to be a, a load of information that goes into the brain. And the more we learn, the more we change the brain. So experience should scale or will be proportionate with the amount of brain changes that we expect to see. And nobody sees that. But in models, these are called connectionist models, this is exactly what happens. All connectionist models that are out there, or virtually all, are based on the blank slate idea. We, we, we make a model and we put in information and unfortunately, everybody who is working in this field knows there is an inconvenient bug. It's called catastrophic interference. These models are unpredictably unreliable, and at some point, new novel information will just kill the entire system. So that's not a good design. If the brain is self-organized, the implication of the self-organized system that the dynamic is the maintaining the dynamic is the main job of the brain. Are you still here? 
still here. Carry on. Okay. So in that case, then what is the role of the inputs that are coming in? So instead of writing in things into the brain, why don't we consider another option as that the self-generation of brain patterns is the primary goal and there are already myriads of potential number of patterns the brain generates. These are called sequences or, or neural trajectories that are there. So in the inside out model, learning is not a loading, but it's a matching process between a pre-existing brain pattern and experience. So when I learn something, it doesn't mean that I have to generate the sequences, but the sequences are already there. I just select one of them and match it to my current experience. In a, in a metaphor, you can say that in one aspect or one way, you can say that the brain is a, a empty book and you have to fill that emptiness with your life experience. In my version, you can say that, no, it's not exactly the case. The patterns are already there. It's a dictionary. It's already filled up with nonsense words. But some of those words can be connected to action-based experience, and they acquire a meaning. Now, combine this big, huge claim with the idea of the log-normal distribution, what I, which we were just thinking about, then it has various important consequences. The first one is that there are restrictions, there are huge constraints what the brain can do. The, the, the brain cannot really do anything. On the other hand, there is an advantage that the brain will always have an idea, always have a good guess about anything. Even a new brain, newborn brain has an idea about the world. And that idea is that it's good enough for the survival of the organism. In every single situation, you, you, I cannot show you anything that you would say it doesn't exist. You would always say is that, oh, this is like, you know, uh, and you will connect it to your pre-existing knowledge. Uh, so the saying that, you know, everything is new to a newborn is probably not right. I would say nothing is new to a newborn. Everything is has some element of familiarity. There is nothing new or brand new without having some elements of familiarity. And of course, this is the very important message of this or, or implication of this, that, that we don't have to, to have a new map. We don't have to have discrete mechanisms for everything, but it's a continuum between familiar and novel. And we have, we and other laboratories have shown and provided support that indeed there are these distributions that are also allowed that some neurons are very rigid. Some neurons are very flexible. Those neurons that are rigid, they typically have a high firing rate. They are special because they burst more. They are special because they are connected to other fast firing neurons better than to the others. 
So they receive privileged information from their peers as well as from everybody else. And this is, you know, in, in the network speak, it's called the rich club. And this rich club is there to make decisions right away under most conditions and pretty fast. And this is what I call good enough solutions. Now, you know, in, in many, many cases, you can say that good enough solution would be sufficient, but sometimes you need better. 90% good enough is not sufficient when you would like to make sure that you are driving on the highway every single day and then 10% of the time you do not crash your car. So in this case, you have to call in a very large uh, real estate of the brain. These are the slow-firing neurons with the with weak connectivities, with, with very high level of plasticity, and uh, this is the reserve brain. So this picture gives you a, a interesting view, is that the terms, the words novel and, and, uh, and familiar are two ends of the distribution. They are not strange to each other. They, they suspect that the other one should exist. Uh, they live together. And this was the idea that I discussed, that there is a fast, effective brain uh, that is served by a minority of very diligent, fast-firing neurons that are there for us all the time, and a precision brain. And uh, this, the story I write in the book is that I thought it was my idea, and I gave a couple of talks about it, and uh, someday somebody stood up and said, to me that, oh, this is very interesting. It sounds very familiar to Kahneman's uh, uh, two systems. And uh, I was embarrassed because I, I, I knew Kahneman and I knew about the work and, uh, and uh, what he has done, but I didn't read the book. That was just published a year before I, uh, my talk was. So I went back to my hotel and uh, I ordered the book on Amazon, but I uh, was scared to read it. And eventually I did it. In one sittings, in one weekend, I still remember I was sitting exactly here in my living room where I'm sitting now, and I was uh, scared that all those things that I thought were great ideas were already told by others. And uh, I, I was very happy by the time I finished the book that indeed the ideas are somewhat similar, but he never even mentioned the brain once. So this uh, framework that he came up with uh, from from, from our approach, which is uh, from inside the brain, converged at some level. And it seems that uh, whatever the mind, what he's talking about is doing, is the same thing what the brain is doing. Yeah, that, that definitely is a very, um, I think, productive convergence of ideas there. And it really it really expands and, and um, improves both, both perspectives. Um, I wanted to come back, maybe draw back to some of the things we talked about earlier and some of the things earlier in the book, because there was one thing that we, um, you, you mentioned somewhat in passing, which was the, um, the way in which efferent copies are uh, distributed and the role of that in um, kind of informing from an, from an inside-out perspective brain systems about action-related um, activities. And one of the one of the 
current you know major threads in in neuroscience and in psychology which you do you do mention in the book is is predictive coding or predictive processing the usual idea there being that the the neuron or the brain region the organism or the agent generates predictions about some aspects of the world and then the key thing is that the prediction error signal the extent to which those predictions are found to be wrong when compared with sensory information that error signal is what drives subsequent learning and action selection. So I was wondering if you have gone so far as to um, kind of drill down on the predictive coding idea, which at that level is uh, somewhat abstract. It's not neurally implemented. Um, and whether you've been able to think about the, the, the mechanistic level, which you tend to apply, in which you, you specialize in and which most of the the ideas that you have, whether the at the level of neural mechanisms you've been you know bring, uh, using using those in the service of thinking about predictive coding and the role of those error signals in driving action selection and learning so as I repeatedly said today and that many times before and already in two thousand six that Brains are predictive devices. They are foretelling devices. That's their main job. Uh, now, predictive coding is a interesting term. I just don't know what coding means. I already mentioned you that the coding becomes coding when you have an agreement between the sender and the receiver. And in in most cases, the the decoder is the human experimenter. So, the in in, in if I'd like to take the predictive coding seriously, I put it back into the brain. And this is the, I would say, the main stream or main uh, focus in, in my laboratory is to show that when we find a correlation between neural activity and something that the experimenter designed is only the first step. The job is not done yet until we show that that activity is actually used and utilized by some downstream reader structure. So this idea that there are downstream readers of any activity is that when we can start talking about coding. Uh, and I, so that is, a, of course, a fantastic and, and large literature about this, but I can take this prediction even further and I can say, well, is that predict, where does this prediction well, predictive power comes from? And the answer is that it comes from the brain dynamic. It comes from the, uh, the, 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 the connectivity, which constrains how things can happen. So, for example, this is a, a hotly debated area, a new area now. Two of my postdocs and students, George Ragoy and the other one is Ken Harris, uh, explored this uh, better than we did. First, we are just catching up now showing that uh, here's a prototype experiment that that George has done in Susumu Tonigawa's laboratory, that you can look at the activity pattern of the hippocampus during sleep in the animal's home cage. Now, next day, you put this animal into a completely novel environment that the animal has never seen. And we can discuss here whether there is anything such a thing as a completely novel environment, but in a novel environment, the animal has, by the experimenter's definition, has never been. 
and you can ask what is the relationship between those neurons that fire together during sleep the night before and during the experiment. And the astonishing answer is that you can make a prediction with much better than chance that those neurons that fire together will fire together again in this novel situation. So recently we went one step further. We said, okay, let's try to put a synthetic pattern into the brain. And this can be done by various manipulations. We used optogenetics and we generated place cells or place fields in the middle of the track. So every single time the animal was running from left to right in the middle of the track for about 30 centimeters, which corresponds to a, a, a size of a place field, we turned on the light and made a bunch of neurons fire. And uh, in some cases, the neurons continued to fire even after we turned off the light, and they continued to fire even in the afternoon. So several hours later, we made place fields. And that was amazing, except that it turned out that not all of them did this. And some other neurons also did that, which were not stimulated. In other words, we reorganized the network a little bit. But the bottom line here is, and the interesting part here, is that only those neurons could become carriers of this imposed new information, which neurons already fired together the night before in the home cage of this uh, of this animal, with those neurons who had overlapping place fields at the place where we imposed our optogenetic stipulation. What does it mean? Well, it means that we didn't make, we didn't add, we didn't do a coding, a predictive coding. What we did is that we used the existing skeleton, this existing uh, framework, this is existing uh, dynamic that allowed to unmask a membership in an already existing club. And this is how we, we express placements. And now going back to uh, the other experiments done by others, they, the idea here is that there is already a realm of possibilities. There are many, many different ways how you can uh, 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 generate patterns. And from this dynamic, the pre-existing dynamic, if you have the right tools to look at this, uh, uh, every details of the pre-existing dynamics, you can predict what will happen next or what will happen a week from now. That's excellent. So I, I also want to skip forward um, back to log scaling for, for another question or two, um, which, which we covered a little bit, but there's, there's a, an issue, kind of a controversy in, in, in neuroscience at the moment that I, I was bothering me reading the book. And I, I like to think it's probably occurred to you, but let, let, let me know what you think. So it, in, um, in analysis of uh, EEG data, and I think uh, LFPs as well, there's you know, the, the kind of characteristic shape of the what you see when you look at a power spectrum is you have the 1 over F. Okay, you have this this negative slope um, with peaks lay, laid out on it, oscillatory peaks, and um, and in the case of human um, brain rhythms, then the, the the prototypical one is the alpha rhythm at eight to twelve hertz. But you have this one over f. Now, 
And the one over F is is basically pretty similar to what you're talking about in terms of this log scaling. So, um, and and one of the the issues, the controversy that I'm uh, kind of um, referring to is that there's it's possible that uh, a large amount of the literature on um, let's say re- like relationships changes in um, in oscillatory power um, as a function of experimental manipulations or disease or whatever um, could be uh, could you could appear to have relative changes in frequency in power power at different frequency bands just coming from changes in for example the slope of the one over f which has been proposed to be a kind of signature of um, of um, um, of filtered noise, basically, or, or neural activity having characteristic of filtered noise. So that seems to uh, kind of overlap with this idea of, of a, a you know hierarchy of oscillatory frequencies lying on a log- logarithmic scale, and maybe not is a confound, but it certainly seems to be in a similar territory. So do you do you try to pass these things out? You know, the kind of background one over f versus um, a or, or do these even kind of fit together for you in a, in a constructive way? So you just beautifully explained the part of the question is whether we are talking about a energy landscape idea, uh, which would be the one OF, and, and basically everything is noise, or there are multiple rhythms. Uh, in my previous book, I discussed it at length and uh, in many papers that, well, <laughs> If you would like to attribute everything to the one over F, then we have to explain this origin. And that, that's the most complex noise that we know, and nobody can come up with a good explanation except very microscopic ones. And physicists or engineers, when they would like to generate a peak noise generator, which is basically the one over F, what they do is cheat. And the cheating is that they make a lot of oscillators and mix them together according to the pink rule. That is, you take more from the low frequency band activity than from the high frequency band activities. So we can easily say this is this is all uh, all rain noise. Now, the embarrassing thing there for you, of course, as I see it now, it is the alpha rhythm, right? Because no matter what you do, <laughs> that just just stands out under all conditions. So is it real or not? Well, the one over f problem, which is typically from scalp recordings, uh, doesn't record from the hippocampus either. So you can do the same trick and you can get beautiful out one over F that the hippocampal theta stands out and so on. So then you can go to the most controversial area, which is the gamma rhythms. Uh, gamma rhythms could be harmonics of the low frequency and every single time you have a little asymmetry in a low frequency oscillation and it, it, it ripples over Two, three times of the the, the 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 harmonics, and that it contributes. So the important thing is that we have to acknowledge that both parties are right. That there is such a thing as a energy landscape. There is such a thing as a cascade. But let's just think about the rhythm in a in a in a different way. So, is it true that, for example? Gamma rhythms is nothing else, just uh, an incidental noise. Well, it could be that case if you take a half an hour recording or one hour recording, and uh, this is how you analyze the data, then in many, many cases, you don't even see a bump or a deviation from this 
this uh, 10F scale. On the other hand, when you do an experiment that you show something meaningful, a meaningful visual pattern, and every single time, or most of the time, you generate a increase in 40 hertz activity, then you might wondering if there is any signaling mechanism here because you could create that. You can you perturbed the system and all of a sudden it started oscillating and it happens that this oscillation happens typically during the time when something interesting happens in the brain. So gamma is one of my favorites and I can take one extreme or the other extreme to explain why this is important. It could be important for just because I what I described that there is a nice correlation. But forget about the rhythm. You just say what is what what does gamma power increase show? Gamma power increase shows you nothing special except that that piece of the tissue is engaged in some kind of you can call it computational activity which is a tug-off war between excitatory neural activity and inhibitory neural activity. Every single time, both pyramidal cells and interneurons increase their firing rate, inevitably, in the power spectrum, you will see a little increase of the power at the gamma frequency band. Whether it's one narrow band or it's, it's not, it's, it's a different thing. So is this an interesting epiphenomena which we can throw away or not? Now, you can look at it from the neurons' point of view, whether this is interesting or not. In an experiment with, with, with my, my colleagues, uh, with especially Ken Harris, many years ago, we asked that, can you predict the occurrence of the action potentials of any neuron in the hippocampus or perhaps anywhere in the brain from other things that are available for you? And the answer is, Yes, you can do a good job. So let's take the first approach. We can look at what the animal is doing. That's a rough correlation. We can look at the ongoing population activity. That helps a little bit more because then we will see that the neuron is firing a particular phase of the data cycle, for example. But what if we have access to the occurrence of action potentials of many, many other neurons? That is, we have all the peers, just like in an orchestra, we would be recording from everybody's uh, movement patterns and the sounds that come out from their instruments and try to predict the movements and the actions of the first violinist. And the answer is that we can do a very good job. We can predict the occurrence of an action potential of any neurons if we have access to the knowledge to all of the other neurons because the neurons live in a local circuit where they are embedded into and they are controlled. And you can ask the, the important question now is that what is the time window? What is the time window within which you can make the best prediction? Is it one microsecond or it's a year? Is it a, a minute or it is a millisecond? And then you can 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 rule uh, move the ruler, and the answer is. It's anywhere between 10 to 30 milliseconds, which, of course, is the duration of the gamma cycle. But that's not the important part. The important part is that this, this magic number, 10 to 30 milliseconds, is magic because this is exactly the time constant of the membrane 
of the neuron. So the time constant of the neuron is also called integration time constant, is the critical thing because this is the mechanism by which the neurons can, or the neuron, the observer neuron, will classify the, its own inputs. And the neuron says, anybody who fires within 10 to 30 milliseconds can lead to one important thing, which is that I can generate an action potential. And the whole goal of this cell assembly, the upstream cell assembly, of course, is to discharge the, sub, the, the, the target neuron. So for this neuron, for this neuron point of view, a entity or a cell assembly is the action potentials of those neurons that happen to fire within the time constant of the neuron within 10 to 30 milliseconds. So the reason why gamma time is so important is because from this is the way how neurons classify the incoming information. If neurons fire 40 millisecond and 50 millisecond later from the first set of neurons, then from the perspective of this downstream classifier neurons, that should be a separate assembly, a separate entity. So this is a broader perspective, the way I, I view the gamma oscillations. So gamma, you know, gamma is a nice one in that way because because you have that really concrete understanding of the of the the circuit mechanism and the relationship of the cellular properties to the clock cycle of the of the rhythm, the frequency of the rhythm. An issue that I have, I guess, and and I'd like to know if this is something that you that bothers you or there's something that comes up in in your experimental and your your theoretical work is. When you have um, multiple potential mechanisms contributing to a given frequency band, so if we put gamma aside for a second and let's say there's only one thing that generates gamma in the brain, which probably isn't true, but go over, just go a little bit further down and say, look at theta and alpha, um, and theta kind of blends into alpha, so they're really kind of they're they're kind of partners in crime to some extent. Um, in the frequency band domain anyway, but um, there are, you know, do you have this issue that um, there could, when, when you're looking at a, a signal and you, you see these, these, um, these peaks and these changes in these frequency bands, there, there are, you know, two, three, five, ten different candidate mechanisms for generating that rhythm. You know, this is something that Eve Marder's to some extent kind of contributed to the idea of like redundancy and degeneracy. Is this a, a problem? Uh, is this a problem that you kind of deal with at an experimental level? And do you think that's also um, a, a major problem for, at, let's say, at the level of the field and developing theories, where we try to put together models, uh, you know, concrete models of um, accounting for the emergence of rhythms? But in some cases, it's just almost indeterminate what what the which of the candidate mechanisms is is the one responsible for a given signal that you're measuring. Yes, this is a huge problem. And it falls into the same exact category that I discuss in chapter one, which is that we have the tendency of naming things. We invent terms and we pretend that the terms that we invent will explain things that we don't understand. 
And this is where I, when I started the, the conversation with you, said, oh, the history of neuroscience is based on trying to find mechanisms for human invented terms. And this is what I made a list. And I, in the book, I call it the James list. But this is the same exact thing what happens when it comes to brain rhythms. So we had one set of observations and we started to call them by names. And there was a, a group of wise men and the international committee in 1977. And then they divided the, the, the frequencies into chunks as if their frequency boundaries would have anything to do with, with rhythms and anything to do with their mechanisms. So what happened is that before we understood anything about the brain or anything about the, the mechanisms, we already gave names and we are defending those names without understanding the mechanism. The inside-out approach says, forget the whole thing. Start with brain mechanisms because as you just rightly pointed out, there could be four, five, ten different ways how to generate data oscillations. And this is a big misunderstanding that you record a, a 48 hertz rhythm in the uh, middle of the scalp and then you see theta and said, oh, hippocampal theta because this is what other people have been investigating and gave the name for the theta activity which is hippocampal theta oscillations. That mechanism is very likely different. We just happen to use the same name for different mechanisms. And the, unfortunately, the converse is also true that you have one mechanism and you've got five different names. So the goal in my lab and the goal in many different labs in, in, in the world, around the world, is to bring it back to mechanism-based uh, solutions. Are there commonalities? You brought up alpha. So alpha is a very prominent, and you know, nobody denies even the, the most vehement uh, uh, <laughs> "Quote unquote enemies of oscillations would agree that it exists, and it's an embarrassing thing that is always there. So there is not an alpha; there is there are alphas, and in fact they are called by different names. So you, you know, in a very simple term, you can call alpha oscillations as the idling patterns when the the, the brain is engaged with itself rather than with the outside world. That happens. The most prominent thing in primates is the occipital alpha because Half of the brain in a primate is devoted to vision. And this is when you don't move your eyes, there is no action blocking, then alpha oscillation is, is prominent. You can go also to the uh, somatosensory system when you are immobile, not moving, standing still, there is an alpha rhythm there. It's called the mu rhythm. Or you can go to the, uh, to the, to the auditory system when there is no incoming noise to your ears and you are not moving your stapedius muscle and the, 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 the middle of your muscles, uh, then there is this tau rhythm. And even there is a rhythm which is similar in the taste system. So they all have the same frequency, same thalamocortical mechanism, mechanisms. They have a lot of in things common, but they can be engaged and disengaged in different ways depending on whether that system is being used or utilized for something. So uh, this is a, 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 a long answer to your short question is that, that it's better to not to stick to the names and the terms, but try to understand 
the mechanisms of, of those terms and try to make our way out from inside out rather than the other way around. That's a really great summary of the the issues we have with redundancy in, in mechanisms and in terminology. Thanks, Yuri. So um, I'd like to kind of draw the, the conversation to a close and just finish up with one more question that takes one um, one outlook, general outlook on pulling together the ideas and the kind of key ideas from, from the book, which you highlight in, in the epilogue, um, which is how this approach, this inside out approach, and particularly the ideas about um, some of the, um, the wiring characteristics, the anatomical and the functional features, um, statistical features um, of, of neural networks, how that could potentially maybe be utilized in artificial intelligence. So do you, could you elaborate a little bit on where you think maybe putting in some brain-like structure into neural networks could um, help to achieve more smart and robust and potentially even you know human-like cognition in those systems? Well, AI, robotics, you know, it's a, they are huge fields and very fast progressing fields, and they recruited extraordinarily smart people. And the nice thing about many of these people is that they are looking for solutions, alternative solutions. And I mentioned one reason for, for, for their looking is the catastrophic interference. And as I mentioned, this is an inevitable consequence of the kind of thinking that is called brain-inspired. So many of the, uh, the machine learning people like to say or claim that their system is brain-inspired. And my sarcastic answer is that they are inspired by the wrong brain model. Uh, if they would like to use the right brain model, then they, at least the anatomical connectivity, the brain dynamic, and so on, should follow what we know a little bit more already about brain dynamics. So I wondered, and that was just a one-line thing in, in the book at the end, what if you could generate a, a brain-like dynamic in a system where the connectivity and the log rules will be similar to the brain rules. And then use matching as a mechanism rather than reinforcement learning to link outside things to the already existing dynamic. The, the guaranteed uh, outcome of this approach is that this system will never collapse. It will not have a catastrophic interference problem. And the curious thing is to see whether and how it would work. And my hunch is that it would work perhaps better or would be working differently. And I'm very eager to see if uh, modelers will sooner or later get to this uh, solution and uh, see whether this alternative inside-out approach will be a better brain inspiration. That's fascinating. And this, this intersection, this, this um, crossover point between neuroscience and psychology and um, machine learning, um, artificial intelligence, this is really a, a growing area. There's been a lot of interesting um, work and you know a new conference in this area over the last few years. So 
it certainly seems like an area that's going to see big things happen soon, judging from the progress of the last few years. Absolutely. Well, I wish I would been... be a graduate student today. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. It's very exciting times. Well, Yuri, this has been a fascinating discussion. I just wanted to, as we wrap up, give you the opportunity to say anything that we've missed out, any key ideas that you want to get across um, and anything that you think we might have not not touched on or developed in sufficient detail so far? I think we, we, we got it right. It's a little chaotic how we got to the main points, but uh, you know, this is the, the, the nature of my brain. I think I, uh, I, I try to answer your uh, very straightforward question in a convoluted manner, but hopefully the main things came through. Yeah, my brain's a little bit chaotic as well, but um, no, this has been a, an excellent discussion. So I've been talking with Yuri Busaki about his new book, The Brain from Inside Out. Yuri, thanks very much. Thank you, John. <laughs>